What's up, mortals? Welcome to Mortality Minded, where we explore life, death, and whatever's next. I'm your host, Thomas Gaudio, and today I'm talking with music thanatologist Catherine DeLong about her fascinating work playing the harp and singing for hospice patients as they approach the end of life. A quick definition here. A thanatologist is someone who specializes in the interdisciplinary study of dying and death. Along those lines, Catherine is also the facilitator of the Integrative Thanatology Certificate Program at the Art of Dying Institute, which is part of the New York Open Center here in New York City, and where I received my certificate in thanatology from. After my conversation with Catherine, I'll share my daily mortality mantras with you, so stick around for that. And I think that's about it. So see you on the other side. Yeah, well, I am uh, very excited to be speaking with you today. We met a few, a couple of years ago, and I consider you a friend and a mentor in a way, and someone with vast amounts of knowledge and wisdom in this area, particularly. So I'm very excited to be speaking with you today. Um, all the way from Salt Lake City. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there we are. Yeah. And um, you just actually had a class. You, you uh, taught uh, in terms of your music thanatology for the Integrative Thanatology Certificate Program, um, which you are the facilitator of, and you're also a teacher. Right. Right. Yeah. The class I taught was... Um, titled Music as Medicine at the End of Life. And it's about my work as a music thanatologist. The specific training um, as a music thanatologist allows me to tend to the needs of people who are at the end of life and to the needs of their family. And when I talk about needs, um, we're talking about the nervous system. And if the nervous system can be calmed, then possibly physical symptoms can be reduced and emotional and spiritual suffering, suffering can be lessened. It's just, um, it's a, both an art and a science that um, at the bedside makes a really big difference for people. Yeah, and not only did I take the certificate program last year um, and experience it in class, but you also came to play for my grandmother uh, a few hours before she passed. Um, and that was an amazing gift to her and to our family. And we're, we're forever grateful for that. And it was beyond moving. It was transcendent. I, you know, it's a word that maybe gets overused and especially in this area, but it, it, it truly is, you know, it, it, it moves beyond the, whatever's happening in the room in terms of the physicality of it. And, you know, seeing her, you know, uh, you play the harp and right. you're playing the harp in tune with the person's breathing as they're laying there and in their dying process and trying to sync up your playing with the rhythm of the breathing. Yeah. That's Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's a way of very subtly companioning them. And it is um, a way that I can really be in it with them, even though they might be unresponsive. 
It was really an honor to be with your family that day. Um, I'm always moved every time I am with a person. It is, um, it's a profound experience. I'm, I'm a little bit speechless. Uh, you know, this is what I do. And yet, it's a little bit hard to put, to put words to it. But I think um, part of it is uh, bringing beauty to someone near the end of their life. It, it, bringing beauty and um, the music in particular helps them be acknowledged. It tells them that they matter, that they are seen. And uh, the music really does uh, open something in the room so that we can feel maybe a sense of wholeness. We can feel something bigger than ourselves. And something just beyond the loss of this moment and the loss of, at least for those of us who are left here, um, this, the tragedy of, of this loss. Mm-hmm. And um, beauty matters at the end of life. So often um, a person declines gradually. Um, about 90% of deaths include, um, you know, declining through cancer, um, heart failure, respiratory issues. Um, this is aside from COVID. COVID is kind of another thing, and we'll get there. But, um, but 90% of people we will see decline gradually. And, and with your grandmother, she lived to such a beautiful old age. And yeah, yeah. And um, I think those organs were were just done. And we call that dying of old age. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, That's probably not what was on her death certificate. But um, (laughs) what happens is their world gets smaller. The geography of their world eventually comes to be the size of a hospital bed. Mm-hmm. And when you bring something to them that is um, elevating and illuminating, it's really a gift. It's something that is so, um, it's precious. It, it truly is. Um, you know, there's so much to unpack there, what you just said, you know, starting with it, beauty is in, important, I believe this is how you phrase it, beauty is important at the end of life. And I, I was going to ask you to expound on that, and you did wonderfully. So in terms of the contrast with what's happening to the, the person's physical body and mental state, and I love how you phrase that, too, you said the geography is shrinking, and it becomes their, their hospital bed becomes their world. And in many ways, they, mentally, they may be either unconscious or withdrawn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there is a real shrinking there that's happening, or they, that we perceive. Right. Well, um, their body and their mind oftentimes both um, 
decline in their ability to serve them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're vulnerable and, and fragile. I remember when I played my very first vigil for a person, I came out of there just thinking, oh my goodness, I cannot believe I was invited to such an intimate place to be with this person who was so sick. And it just felt like truly um, an honor to get to be with them in that moment. Yeah. I, I, can, I can only imagine, imagine you know, doing it once, let alone on a regular basis, as th- that this is your job. Right. And the way you speak about it, you know, it, a job is a poor word. It does, does not seem like a job in many ways at all. Maybe I could be wrong, but it just. Oh, it's a job. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, I guess um, there's, there's always that aspect of it, right? No matter what it well, is. It's a job because you have a commitment. Yeah. Let's just say um, I'm not getting rich doing this job. If I, <laughs> if I was interested in, in money and if, that was, if it, that was my goal, I would be doing something different. And um, mm-hmm. I made a choice when I was 50-ish. Um, I was making other life changes, and I had been selling harps at the time for the premier harp maker in the world. And here we had a recession, you know, the financial world fell apart, and I was being asked to meet sales goals. And mm-hmm. I just said, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? What can I do that benefits other people? But what can I do that benefits myself? Um, I'm not totally altruistic. I thought I want to do something that I'm going to get something out of that is bigger than a paycheck. Mm -hmm. And I had been aware of music thanatology as a field. In 1996, it was on um, Christmas night. A woman was featured on Ted Koppel's mm, Nightline. and she was a music thanatologist. She was the founder of the field. Mm. Um, Therese schroeder Sheker was her name. Okay. And then in 2009, I went to study with her. And, and so that's um, kind of how that evolved. Wow. I mean, that's, yeah, in this day and age, to, to be able to study with someone who founded a field, I mean, that's, that's amazing. Right. Um, Therese was a medievalist as well as a musician. And she um, based the model for music thanatology on the work of 11th century Benedictine monks. Oh. Um, the, the monastery in Cluny, France, was the largest monastery in Europe at the time. Hmm. And um, part of their mandate was to take care of people who were traveling on the road. And when someone was dying in their care, um, they were very clear about how to care for them. Um, We have records of when one of the monks was dying, they would stand around the bed and sing. And they never left a dying person alone. Wow. Their mantra was, care for the body, cure for the soul. 
And we hold on to that same concept. Um, I have no power to change an outcome, but I can make this moment, um, this time that I'm with a patient, really um, meaningful. Mm -hmm. The the Benedictine monks, this reminds me of a CD I had in high school of Gregorian chants. So would they chant then to the patients? Would they sing? Yes. Yes. And Gregorian chant is fabulous. I use a lot of chant with patients. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of reasons why it's really useful. First of all, it's unmetered. That means it doesn't have a strict beat. Mm, Gregorian chant, the music was written to meet the words. And most of the words of chant come from the Psalms. So they would just take the psalms out of out of the um, text and then make the music and the melody fit the words. Ah, interesting. Which is the opposite of the way most music is written. Usually, uh, the music is, music is written first, and then the words are matched to the music. Okay. So um, hmm. the nice thing about unmetered music is that the human body is less apt to um, sync up with unmetered music. Hmm. If you are imminently dying and um, it's, it's okay, it's okay for your organs to relax and for you to, to um, move on. And so it, it's really nice to use unmetered music when a person is, is getting close. In other words, with metered music, the there's an effort by the body to sync up. It wants to sync up. Ah, so interesting. Yeah, yeah. It wants to entrain. It wants to. You know how you go to? Well, you might not realize this, but when you go to a concert, mm-hmm. everybody's in it together, and yeah. the beat is strong, and people's bodies are are really synced up, and they're all in, they're entrained together, and that's wow. part of the excitement of the energy and why it's so fun to be there yeah that's i mean these are things i i I, at least i never think about and probably most people yeah Yeah. it's just sort of uh, automatic reactions yeah you're right yeah so um part of my well let's go back to (laughs) gregorian chant yeah um so that's one of the things and the other thing about gregorian chant is that it's usually sung this melody line, this long flowing melody that oftentimes takes some interesting turns and it doesn't have a a lot of accompaniment. There's usually not harmony. It's just one line of melody. Mm -hmm. And the brain can follow that. That's kind of relaxing to the brain. Mm. So um, that's that's a really... um, that's it's useful um it's a useful source of repertoire going back to the, the, the benedictine monks would they then chant in this or the music that was played for the for the people who were dying was, was it equally unmetered to, as the gregorian chants are they would have been chanting gregorian oh they would have been chanting gregorian. Yeah. okay yeah. yeah ah okay i i wanted to go back 
to the idea of sound. Um, so th there was just a study I saw that um, someone shared on social media, something that I think we, that I've heard from you and others in the, uh, when, as I became more educated around end of life issues in, in that sound is one of the last senses, if not the, the last sense to go in terms of your, your perception as you're dying. Right. Um, so I think, you know, if people are thinking, you know, if you're imagining right now listening to this and Catherine playing her harp and beautifully and singing wonderfully as well, you, cause, because you sing also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and thinking, well, the person's dying, their body's shutting down. Can they even hear you? And the answer is we think yes, very much so. And, and sort of maybe that syncing up of your playing with the person's breathing is almost proof or I don't know if that's if that's independent of the, the hearing or it's in conjunction with the hearing, but we do know that sound is one of the last senses to go and that they most likely are hearing you. Right. Assum assuming they're right. not, their hearing is not impaired. Right. Um, hearing, uh, the processing of sound takes place in more than one place in the brain. Mm. Language is processed in the um, left side of the temporal lobe and sound is processed in the right side of the temporal lobe and that temporal lobe sits just above the brainstem. And the brainstem is where all the autonomic things, that's kind of the center. Mm. Um, the senses of smell and sight and um, taste happen in the neocortex, which is in a little more frontal where executive function happens. Mm -hmm. So um, even though a person can hear as they're nearing the end of life, um, well, let's just say parts of the body are shutting down, but those autonomic things keep going and, and they can hear, even though they probably can't um, formulate any words because the neocortex is kind of done. Um, and I see people who are unresponsive. I'll see an eyebrow raise. And you'll see just very subtle little things that lets you know that they are receiving the music. A head will turn just ever so slightly, just a, just a little tiny bit. Um, yeah, so, so while they can't really um, show up and be there, they can receive the music. Mm -hmm. And in terms of syncing up your you're playing and singing with the, the their breath, which can be ragged at the end. It could be very right. fast or very slow, depending, right, as they're right. dying. And, and your efforts to sync up with that, is that independent then of, of the hearing? Is that a physical body reaction, the resonance of the heart playing, or is that the perception of hearing is still required. Like, let's say, like my grandmother, her hearing was very impaired, but she had hearing aids. And, and even while she was dying towards the end, because we were there with her and speaking with her and making sure that we 
still paid her a lot of attention, you know, fawning over her. Yes, yes. Um, uh, is she still had her hearing aids in, so I think that that helped with the hearing. So is that required in terms of the, that that um, syncing up with the breathing? No, they're really not related ah. from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to talk about um, the fact that we hear not just through our ears. Our skin is porous and receives the vibrations. And this, those vibrations are conducted through the bone. Mm-hmm. Bone is a much more efficient conductor of sound than even air. Mm. Um, you notice if you're in a place where there are a lot of hard surfaces, it's fun to sing. It's why we sing in the shower. Because <laughs> all the, uh, the sound bounces off those hard surfaces. Yeah. And... Um, Bone is hard and it conducts sound beautifully. Mm. So, especially with so many of our elderly who are hard of hearing, even without their hearing aids, they receive the music. So when people say, or, yeah, I feel the music, that's quite literal. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because oftentimes we think of that phrase as being almost metaphorical, but but it's really pretty, sounding pretty literal. It definitely is literal. Yeah, yeah. And we also have to be super sensitive um, because so many of of our elderly in particular, their skin is really thin. Mm -hmm. It's just like tissue paper. And so we need to be sensitive to how vulnerable they are Mm -hmm. and really, really be um, gentle in terms of the number of notes we play, they don't need a symphony. They don't need a lot. Mm-hmm. But a little goes a long way. They don't need a lot of volume and they don't need a lot of notes. Keep it simple. Yeah, yeah. That's been one of my, my challenges as a classically trained musician. Um, you think you're good when you're playing a lot of notes. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, less is more, definitely at the bedside. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, you know when she was declining, and we f- had finally um, uh, requested hospice services for her. How she loved opera, you know, um, when she was a little more um, cognitively uh, um, with it, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and although she was declining prior to in terms of her cognition, she had probably mild to moderate dementia. Sure. Um, but she was still able to, prior to her strokes at 100 years, 100 years old and then surviving for two more years <laughs> against all odds. Um, yeah, she loved opera. And then we tr- I tried um, downloading the Met, the Metropolitan Opera here in New York, they have a channel or an app I think you can download. And uh, so I, I kind of did a trial run to see because she's just sitting on the couch all day, right? And not getting a lot of stimulation. Like we would go in there and speak with her as much as possible and take her for walks around the, in her apartment, but trying to get, you know, have some kind of more in, um, stimulation related to the, what she would, you know, be uh, enjoying prior to the state. And we found very shortly that she couldn't follow the opera anymore. This is not something that she was 
really capable of enjoying. It was more like felt like um, an oppression in a way or something like that. She just was not, it was, that this was no longer for her. Mm-hmm. And, and it seemed like maybe the complexity of it, like fo- because op- opera can be, right, you have to follow a story. Right, right. There's a documentary called Alive Inside. I've heard of that. Yeah. It's worth taking a peek at. It follows um, a social worker who, his name is Dan Cohen, and he um, would put favorite songs from when the person was a youth, you know, you know, those teenage years where you kind of, we all have our, our, our um, soundtrack from those years. Sure. He would put that music um, on an iPod and then play it for people who had dementia, Alzheimer's, cognitive issues, and they literally would dance and they were, it just, it made them just so happy. Yeah. And this is a lovely thing to do for, you know, those long days when you talk about your grandmother sitting on the couch. Mm-hmm. That's a great thing to do at that point. When we get closer to the end, unfamiliar music is better. Mm. Because if I play your favorite piece of music, you have memories associated with that. Mm-hmm. And Familiar music can anchor us here, can anchor us in this world. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if I play something unfamiliar for you, perhaps that spaciousness, um, you might be curious about where might this take me? That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's important to know the difference. uh, And when are these different kinds of music appropriate? You know, those favorite pieces are great for those long days when when someone is sitting in a chair with their head bowed and their life is pretty, um, oh boy, solitary. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can make a day better. It doesn't really affect outcomes in the end, but it makes a day um Filled with some some happy moments, perhaps. Yeah, there's a potential for that at least. Yeah. See, I thought you when you started going down the route of music they're familiar with is not the best route to go. I thought you were going to go down the route of down the down the avenue of that will trigger memories that may may make them long for those days and then bring some kind of element of like sadness or regret. Or something along those lines. That's where I thought you were going, but you went the you went a different way. And, and the, really, the point is that it's more about not giving them an excuse to to stick with something familiar, and so that it gives them this mental sort of openness to explore a new song they're unfamiliar with, and then that will perhaps give them permission to leave if they were otherwise hesitant to do so. Yeah, it. Um, I, I um, want to say that it opens, might open them to to other possibilities. Mm. And I'm just crazy enough to think that it might even give them courage to take a step in a new direction. Hmm. Because. You, I, I believe I'm quoting this correct. You said about half of the patients you've played for 
uh, end up passing the same day or within some kind of short time frame after you play? Um, not necessarily. Um, mm. It depends. It depends on where the patient is in terms of their their trajectory. Mm-hmm. On a palliative unit in a hospital, people are quite sick. In order for them to even um, qualify to be there, they have to be quite sick. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm playing in a hospital, it is not uncommon for that person to pass within a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it happens that people might pass sooner after having had some music. If, if your nervous system is calmed a bit, mm-hmm. if you can relax, if you can release fear, if your pain is lessened, mm-hmm. then it's possible that you might get on your way sooner than if you were um, holding on tightly to this world because you were so afraid. Mm-hmm. And I, we should mention that you you typically work in hospital environments, in palliative care, as you mentioned, or in, or in hospice environments. I work in hospice environments. Uh, right now with COVID, they um, have asked me to take a little break because <laughs> my work is considered non-essential, which is really paradoxical at this moment. Yes, um, truly. But typically I am either uh, working with palliative patients in a hospital or with hospice patients, mm-hmm. wherever they are. It might be in a, a hospice facility might be even in their home or in other skilled nursing facility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you you came out as a, as a gift to for my family and my grandmother to uh, her apartment, which was amazing. And you know, she she passed. I think I mentioned this earlier. Within a few hours of you playing, which I I was joyful about. It's almost like a a scripted ending. It was it was bizarre. I mean, we were all surprised, you know, in the shock of it in the moment, not the shock she was 102 in a hospice, but, you know, just in that immediate grief and the aftermath. But then in talking with my family who, who were all there, my, my dad, my mom, my, my aunt, my uncle, and one of, our, one of the aides who was amazing, had been with my grandmother for two years. And we were all, you know, just crying and consoling each other. At some point it came up at, as just this, being this really bizarre but beautiful, almost like, yeah, scripted ending for for her that very shortly after you played, I mean, within three hours, she was gone. Right. I see that quite often um, with, with eminent patients in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, an eminent patient typically... Um, in terms of, of medical um, diagnostics, they have probably less than 48 hours to live. Mm-hmm. That's, that's loose. You know, we never know. People, people yeah. do what they do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but when I play for someone who is eminent, my antenna is up 
for the next couple of hours and I go back in and check on them and check with their nurse. And, and it is quite common that they will make their transition in the few hours afterwards. Now they're imminent. So they're going to do that anyway. Right. So I, I, I don't want to connect those dots to, um, <laughs> I understand with a, with a big sharpie marker because <laughs> it's um, it's not mine to control in any way, yeah. but it happens. There may be some association there, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, like my grandmother, she defied the odds for you know years. She should have been dead much at a hundred after her stroke, and and you know we took her off the ventilator and the priest came to do last rites and she, you know, lived another two years. So, and even towards the end when they were sort of saying, Oh, she only has a couple of weeks left and then it would be, she would blow by that deadline. <laughs> mm-hmm. So as, as you put it, as you put it so well, uh, we just don't know. We never know. And there's, you know, there's. Yeah, well, I would not, have, I would not have wanted to leave either. Um, <laughs> If I was her, your family uh, created such a beautiful container um, is a word that kind of works, but you cared for her with such, such love. And um, boy, it was really a privilege to get to, to be part of that just for a short time. Thank you. Yeah, it was great to have you. And, you know, um, having taken the, the thanatology course, immediately before that we finished up in June of last year and then she passed in September. So having that training, um, even though, you know, like, as you said, we, we were implied earlier, like we all, you know, it, it, you know what to do. They know what to do in terms of dying and we know what to do in terms of caring for them. It's just that we're generally unfamiliar with this, but there's some kind of just um, unconscious understanding of what, you know, what you need to do. If you if you can get past the discomfort, maybe or at least the the unfamiliarity of it, it's it is uh, very much um, normal. It feel like it feels both you know normal and profound and 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 disorienting, but there's something very just normal about it as well. There's something normal about it, it if you're normal. willing to live with it. And I think that's what was unusual about your family is that she had her own apartment within the family home. Yes. And you saw her decline. You cared for her in whatever way was needed at that particular you know, time, moment in time. And most of us, for many reasons, um, we are not living intergenerational lives anymore. Yes. And our loved ones are often facilities. They're somewhere where someone else is taking care of them much of the time. Yes. And so we don't have a hands-on view. We, we, it becomes easier to, just to let someone else do it all mm-hmm. and to even be the um, let other people touch your loved one in yes. ways that you're not comfortable touching them. Mm. Well, as someone who's spent a lot of time, you know, 
working in these environments, how do you approach it in terms of being at the bedside of people who are dying and being in a place with a lot of suffering? Um, I am empathic, but I am not an empath. Mm -hmm. And I tend to not take on other people's emotions. I tend to not take on their suffering. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that is one of my gifts in terms of it allows me to do the work. Mm -hmm. And yes, I have rituals and practices that also sustain me mm -hmm. because it is intense. When you asked me earlier, is that a job? It's a job. It's really intense. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful to do it. Yeah. But, um, but you have to take care of yourself. Uh, and we are all wired so differently. Mm -hmm. um, I am very aware when I'm with a patient and I can tell when they are seeing someone, mm -hmm. having an interaction with someone um, that is beyond this world. Mm -hmm. I can't see that person. I can't see what the patient is seeing, but I can see the, the signs that it's happening with the patient. Yeah. And it's very obvious. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's okay. For, for some time, I was like, oh, I wish I could see that too. But it allows me to do my work and to really hold space for people mm -hmm. and not get distracted by everything that enters the room that cannot be seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in you know, many ways, it's, it's not meant for you. It's not meant for us. It's meant for them only. And... Uh... Yeah, I think that's it's a useful skill. I think what you're describing because it allows you, you, you need a little bit of distance to do this work effectively. Sounds like right, right. To not get to not get to not be, get just so drawn into it that you lose yourself and become just uh, emotionally drained. I would say right. Well, my role is to be the observer and the participant at the same time. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I'm in it, but I'm also very clearly watching and I'm aware of what's going on in the room. I pay really close attention to what I see with the patient and what also is going on with their, their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And um, all of those things are part of the picture that affect my um, delivery of music. Which, you know, I think you brought this up earlier. It, it's, it, it makes no sense that you have been deemed inessential during yeah. this pandemic when, you know, we are steeped in death right now. And people are dying alone. Mm -hmm. And this is the real tragedy. I mean, yes, it's a tragedy that they're dying at all prior to when they might have died naturally. Mm -hmm. But um, it causes great pain for the families who are unable to accompany their person. They might put them in, in an ambulance and never see them again. Mm -hmm. And initially, I was so torn about this. Um, and 
certainly I ha- must have a role. I, I must fix this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were many days when I would just sit in my room and play my harp and say, this is for all of you. I, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. But it was quite appropriate for me to not be there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was that was that was correct for me to step back and to not be in a place where my life would be in danger. Yeah, of course. But so, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's it's a very difficult balance for you. I'm yeah, sure. yeah, and it's possible I have delivered some music vigils um, over Zoom ah. and over FaceTime. How's that going? Well, it's interesting. I can still synchronize with the respiration, believe it or not. Wow. And if there is someone at the facility who can set up an iPad or a laptop or whatever, the person's family can also be dialed in. So that's great. It is, but we have to have a commitment from someone in that institution to take the time to really create this, this um, something sacred around this end of life. Yeah, it has to be set up properly. It has to be set up properly. Properly, And in New York, in the facilities where I was working, there was just no time for this. Yeah. There was, there was no bandwidth. Yeah. And that's okay. That's okay. Uh, um, you know, things change, and I expect to be of service in a more um, regular way soon. Yeah. And maybe this will be our final sort of thing we talk about. What So how do you envision your experience happening? I mean, if you were to have this sort of deathbed um, experience, would you want someone playing for you like you've played for so many? I kind of don't care. Uh, wow, interesting. I didn't see <laughs> curveball at the end here. I didn't see that coming. Well, you're asking me that on today. Tomorrow, right. <laughs> I might have a different answer. And, and I'm allowed to have a different answer every day of the week. You Every minute of the day. Yeah. Um, and maybe because I've been so in it, I just don't care. Um, my needs are not great. Mm -hmm. Just love is what I want. I want my grandkids. Just, um, a feeling in the room of love. Yeah. And whatever brings that in is what I want. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great that would, that would be a great send off. There is not much more you need, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time, and um, I hope to see you in person soonish. Yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Thomas. It's great to be with you. All right. Yeah. Thanks again. Bye bye. We'll, yeah, we'll talk soon. Bye bye. Cool. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Catherine DeLong. If you're interested in learning more about her and her work as a music thanatologist, you can find her at delongharp.com. That's D-E-L-O-N-G-H-A-R-P.com. And you can contact her at delongharp, like I just spelled it, at gmail.com. And now, as promised, I want to share my daily mortality mantras with you. 
I developed the first one over the course of several months and began saying it to myself a few years ago. It goes like this. I will die and I could become severely ill and or disabled. One or more of these state changes could happen or start happening right now, decades from now, or at any moment in between. So I will make the most of whatever time I have left while I'm still healthy and breathing. And the second one is a saying in Italian from my grandmother, who died last year at the amazing age of 102. She would say it to me and other members of my family whenever we needed to hear it. And it's something I repeated over and over to her uh, when she was on her deathbed shortly before she died as sort of travel advice, just in case she was going somewhere. It goes like this. Ordina al tuo destino di essere bello e tale sarà. It means command your destiny to be beautiful, and it will be. I say both of them to myself every day, usually after the roughly 30 to 60 second ice cold shower I take every morning, shortly after getting out of bed, to help wake my groggy ass up. So I hope these mantras help you as much as they help me. All right, that's it for me. Don't forget to subscribe to the Mortality Minded Podcast and check me out on mortalityminded.com and at mortalityminded on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. See you soon. And in the meantime, stay mortality-minded. Mortality Minded.